Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are all that we need. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Because no matter what the question, no matter what the problem, Jesus is the answer and Jesus is the solution. And so, Father, as we come to this next time here of, of preaching your word and hearing what you have to say, Father, I pray that you would hide me and that we would be able to see more of you. Help us to listen to what you would say to our heart today. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And uh, at this time, the children can be dismissed for Children's Church. And as we're doing that, I just mentioned to you, as Pastor Aaron did last week, that the month of January is his study break. And so we are going to start a four-week series, um, Pastor Thad and I, uh, entitled Unexpected, Taking a Look at What You Never Saw Coming. But once again, at this time of year, when many people make resolutions, we talked about this last year, where over 100 million Americans will fail at their resolutions by the end of January. So we talked about this one word concept, and this means finding a single word to be your theme, guiding you through the year. And so as one, it's one way of simplifying things and focusing on just one word as your theme. So you take time to discover what your word is by considering what's God been saying to you in this past year? Or maybe what do we need to surrender to Him in the coming year? Something that maybe we need to let Him take hold of for His honor and for His glory. But as you work through those questions, it will reveal to you your theme for the year and you listen to God and you come up with this God word. And so for some of you who may have done that last year, I would love to hear how that went. Did you keep it front and center? How did God use that in your life? So email me, call me, catch me and tell me. I would love to know how that went. But I want to share with you what God's been showing me and how He has led me to a new word this year. You may remember last year, if you were here, that in 2018, my word was disciple. And as a disciple of Jesus, He calls us to follow Him. And a disciple learns by doing and is being changed by Him, and we are committed then to the mission of Jesus. And as I committed to being a disciple with greater purpose and intentionality, I learned some unexpected things. Some unexpected things that I'd like to share with you today. So the message is going to be in two parts. And the first part is some unexpected things that I've discovered this last year. And then we'll turn to Scripture and look at a well-known passage that I hope that we will also discover some unexpected things about the gospel today. <clears throat> First, let me tell you that in 2019, my one word is gospel-centered. Now, it's a hyphenated word, and I checked it out, and it's hyphenated word is considered one word. But I want to become more gospel-centered in all that I do, in how I live, 
and how I think about my faith in Christ. And as I learned and worked on my theme throughout this past year, it led me to the think about the fact that we are sent to be messengers, messengers of the good news. And I was struck by the fact that since the gospel is such good news to all those who believe, why don't we see more people discipling and evangelizing? Why is that not flourishing in our community? I mean, it is good news, isn't it? So it caused me to look at my life and to say, why am I not living out what I claim to believe? Why am I not excited to share the good news with others? Do I really understand the gospel? Why am I not motivated? Why do I tend to be complacent and sometimes even downright selfish rather than sacrificing my life, my time, and my possessions for the gospel to be advanced? Why? So this led me to three unexpected places that I never saw coming. And the first unexpected thing I learned is that the answer to all those questions is not to try harder. It's not to strive harder. I was, I was striving really, really hard. But we are to learn to live our life from God and not for God. And I realized that I had some misplaced motivations and realized that all the self-effort in the world would not help me to fulfill the Great Commission. Another unexpected thing that I learned is that I'm a professing unbeliever, and I bet you are too. But before you shut me off, let me ask you a question. Is it possible that we have neglected to understand for ourselves how the good news of Jesus impacts every facet of our lives? If you believe in Jesus, has it really changed what you do daily, how you engage in the everyday stuff of life? When we talk about being a professing unbeliever, it's to say that there are places in our lives where we don't believe God, that there are spaces in our lives that we don't trust God, and that it's in those spaces that you and I are unbelieving. And Craig Rochelle calls that Christian atheism, which means believing in God, but living as if He doesn't exist. Now, let me help unpack that just for a moment. Is there a time in your life when you were closer to God, when you sensed you were really near to Him, but you've become busy being a full-time dad, husband, wife, mom, student, employee, business owner, etc.? and only a part-time follower of Christ? Or perhaps you believe in the love of God, but you don't really believe that He loves you. Maybe you know what God wants you to do, but you still do whatever you want. Potentially you want to trust God as your provider, but you find it really hard to actually trust Him. 
So when I started considering some of these topics, I realized that there are differences from what I claim to believe and how I'm actually living. Some more areas could be you believe in God, but you just don't know Him very well, or you believe in God, but you don't think He's fair, or you believe in God, but not really in prayer, or you believe in God, but you won't forgive someone, or you believe in God, and yet you still worry all the time, or you claim to believe, and yet you seem to trust God more. Than money. I mean, you seem to trust money more. Maybe you claim to believe in God, but you don't share your faith. And unfortunately, I don't like having to admit that I discovered several areas in my life where I am not as believing as I thought I was. So this led me back to considering the gospel and why don't I share it with others? And Jeff Vanderstelt, in his book entitled Gospel Fluency, says that we need to become more affluent with the gospel, not just learned enough to speak snippets and phrases and a few verses, but immerse ourselves in the gospel. That this fluency idea means to be able to speak the gospel like we speak another language, easily and effectively. So then this means that We must let the gospel take root in our hearts and let it shape how we live and let it shape how we engage the world. The gospel-fluent people think, feel, and perceive everything in light of what has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says that the gospel may not be good news to our hearers if we don't take the time to listen, understand, and then speak the gospel to the real brokenness and longing of their souls. And to do so in a way that they can hear it, in a way that sounds like good news to them in their present situation. So this means then that we need to immerse ourselves in the gospel, learn to apply the gospel to ourselves every day. Learn to speak the gospel truths to one another, to bring the gospel to bear on one another's lives and on the lives of those who don't believe. The third unexpected thing I discovered is I don't understand the gospel as thoroughly as I thought. Led me to discover the idea of gospel wakefulness. And that title is because there was a conference that came last April that I participated in entitled Gospel Wakefulness. And the point of that was to help us learn that we need to be utterly captivated by the gospel. And Jared Wilson, the pastor, speaker, and author says that gospel wakefulness means treasuring Christ more greatly, savoring His power more sweetly, that it's a deeper and fuller appreciation of the first and only necessary conversion, a greater vision of what we perhaps only barely and minimally perceived upon salvation. So the idea is to have a deeper understanding of the gospel beyond just viewing it as a transaction for salvation or a ticket to heaven, so to speak. But the gospel comes in exchange for the life that you once lived, 
not in addition to your old life. So as we grow closer to our Savior, He unveils more and more of Himself. And we can see the gospel more clearly and more deeply. For some of us who have grown up in the church, like me, we tend at times to be more like Pharisees and we fail to see Jesus. We need to be awakened to the gospel to be more captivated by it, to have our eyes opened and reach a deeper, fuller appreciation of the gospel. And this topic of gospel wakefulness is uh, fascinating, but it's too large to unpack here today. But getting back to my one word, as a result of my one word theme of disciple, the Lord has led me to an awakening of the gospel that has impacted my heart, my thinking, my faith and trust in Jesus, and it's growing deeper as a result. But learning these things about myself was unexpected. So this brings us to our sermon series, Unexpected, over the next four weeks that we're going to look at people who encounter Jesus, and we'll see some unexpected things. So as we transition into our passage today, let's look at Luke chapter 19. And while you're turning there in your Bibles... We'll look at a little background for Luke. It's the longest book in the New Testament. He spends 10 chapters covering the story of Jesus, his journey to Jerusalem. Mark just covers it in two chapters and Matthew in four. But the events we see today are toward the end of his Jesus journey. He is in Jericho, which is only about 17 miles from Jerusalem. And everywhere Jesus went, it seems that the scribes and the Pharisees are challenging Jesus, and they're very hostile towards Him. And He continues to teach many things through parables and interactions with others that are along this journey that Luke has recorded for us. Several parables and events that involve tax collectors and rich, and He teaches on discipleship, and He heals the crippled and the blind. He teaches about repentance and the lost sheep the lost son, stumbling blocks, etc. And in chapter 18, just before our passage today, we find three things that contrast us with our passage today that I'll quickly mention. We have a self-righteous Pharisee who's contrasted with a humble tax collector. And the Pharisee is, a self, is self-righteously standing and praying and saying, I thank God that I am not like these people, greedy, adulterous, unrighteous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, in humility, he stands afar off and he won't even raise his eyes towards heaven. And he strikes his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what Jesus says then, he says, I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house more justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We find the rich young ruler, he questions Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him to obey the commandments, and he lists out several of them. And the rich ruler says, well, I've done all these. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, 
Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And Scripture tells us that he went away very sad because he was extremely rich. And so Jesus' response is how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So they say, well, then who can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then they come to, they're coming right up to Jericho and blind Bartimaeus is beside the road and he finds out that it's Jesus that's going by. And he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he responds, I want to see. And Jesus heals him and says, your faith has made you well. So these three events leading up to our passage show us that self-righteousness is contrasted with humility. Trusting in riches proves to be devastating, but faith in Jesus brings healing. So now Jesus enters Jericho, and that brings us to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1, where he enters Jericho and he was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he's a chief tax collector, and he's rich. He's trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man, or a wee little man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacharias, or Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. And all who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. So I want to show you three unexpected things that Zacchaeus didn't see coming. And the first is this unexpected meeting that we saw in verses 2 through 5. Jericho is a very affluent settlement. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's in a despised class. He's being viewed as a traitor by his fellow Jews. Tax collecting would be assigned to the highest bidder. They would pay the region's taxes to the Romans for their district, and then they would go to their people and collect taxes from the people. Now, the Romans, as long as they received their required uh, taxes, they didn't really care how the money was collected. Tax collectors also earned their living by collecting more than they paid. But they also were not known as the most ethical profession, skimming off more than their fair share, enriching themselves. And so being a chief tax collector would mean that he probably was a head officer over a region of tax collectors. And as part of the despised class, he's viewed as a sinful man. 
Zacchaeus here in this passage, he's not trying to be in the public eye. He just wants to see Jesus. But Jesus approaches Zacchaeus. Jesus takes the initiative to approach this powerful and unpopular man. Jesus calls him by name, and he says, just as the song says, Zacchaeus, you come down, or I'm going to your house today. Verse 5, he says, hurry, come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Jesus came right to him, calls his name, invites himself over. Zacchaeus says in verse 6, he quickly came down and welcomed Jesus joyfully. But the crowd's response to this meeting and to Jesus going to stay with him in verse 7 is all who saw it began to complain, he's going to stay with a sinful man. How dare he associate with that person? For Jesus, the work of salvation here takes precedence over social protocol. Jesus recognized that in in this despised sinner, someone who was lost and needed to be found. He didn't judge him. He didn't avoid him. He didn't look down on him. He went to his house. He ate with him and stayed with him. What do you think that says to someone who's not part of the in-group, someone who's in socially despised? He wasn't rejected by Jesus. Jesus wanted to spend time with him. What an impact that had on his life. Zacchaeus joyfully, it says, welcomed Jesus. He didn't expect to meet him. He just wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus. He just wanted to see Jesus. And you know, I know that most of us, we like to be accepted, loved, and known. It means a lot to us. We seem to crave it, to be known by name. And some of the biggest lies we tell ourselves that keep us from coming to Jesus is that we don't think that we're lovable. We don't think that we're good enough. But Jesus calls you by name and says, I want to dwell with you. Now, I'm coming to the conviction that hospitality is a huge deal in the Christian life. That most people come to Christ because of extended relationships with believers more than they do from short interactions with strangers. And I've been impacted by Rosaria Butterfield's testimony of how she came to Christ, and some of you may recognize that name. Um, She was a tenured English professor. She happened to be a lesbian who was an avid activist for the LGBT community. She wasn't looking for God, but God found her. He found her through the friendship and weekly hospitality of a pastor and his wife who accepted her, they didn't judge her, or even demand that she should go to church. Instead, they steadily shared the love of Christ with her, and she came to Christ as a result. Rosaria is now a pastor's wife herself, and just as hospitality was used in her salvation story, it's now being used in the life of her neighbors 
who are learning about the grace of God and becoming Christians. And so she wrote a book that I've only read the executive summary, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, that's entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radical, Ordinary Hospitality in a Post-Christian World. Now, what I do know is that to love means to sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. To love God and love our neighbors means it's going to take some sacrifice to share the love of Christ. Share the love of Christ with our neighbors. We are His disciples. We are sent to carry the good news. And it might just mean that you need to befriend someone who may be a social outcast. Or maybe we might look down on them for some reason or their lifestyle. Or maybe it's just socially awkward because they don't live the way that you do. That just might be the opening that you need to share the love of Christ, to share why you live so differently. Where is it that you go every Sunday? Why is that so important to you? So the first thing we saw here in Zacchaeus is an unexpected meeting and that those around him were criticizing it. But then the second thing we see is Zacchaeus' unexpected response in verse 8. What we don't see, though, is the time they spent together and what the dialogue was. But what we do see is a decisive response to the presence of Jesus. Zacchaeus declares, I will give half my possessions to the poor. If I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times the amount. What a generous response to give half of his possessions to the poor. That certainly is a change of heart. Now, the amount is not what's important. What is important to Jesus is a matter of the heart. Zacchaeus is pledging the results of his life's work, his life's accumulations, that he's freely going to give to the poor half of it. Now, if we remember, in contrast, a rich ruler, Jesus told him to sell all that he had and come follow him. Again, though, it really wasn't about the amount, it was what he was trusting in. The rich ruler is holding on to his money and possessions instead of following Jesus, where Zacchaeus, he had an unexpected change of heart, and it's a heart of generosity. Second part of his declaration is a means of making restitution for sin based upon the Jewish law. If someone stole a lamb, they were to pay it back with four lambs. And Numbers chapter 5 will tell us that when they confessed their sins, they were to make restitution to those they had wronged. So his response indicates that he has a repentant heart, that he wants to make restitution. And you know, when the gospel does its work, it transforms even a tax collector can be saved. Remember back in chapter 18 where self-righteousness is contrasted with humility, Zacchaeus here is demonstrating humility. The rich ruler, is, he was trusting in his riches and it proved to be devastating, but Zacchaeus, he repents of his sin. So we have this unexpected meeting where 
Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. He invites himself over to his house. And Zacchaeus has this very unexpected response. And that brings us to our third thing, which is Jesus' unexpected declaration in verse 9. Where Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Forgiveness and salvation come to those who repent and believe and then are granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus goes on to say, because he too is a son of Abraham. So for a despised Jew, what a declaration from Jesus. To some Jews, being a tax collector, even if they're Jewish by birth, would mean that he forfeited any right to be counted as the chosen people. But Jesus' declaration restores him. Because it's with association with Abraham that his people are able to enjoy God's salvation, to be known as a descendant of Abraham. But just like in the prior chapter, blind Bartimaeus' eyesight was restored and he received salvation by faith. Here, salvation comes to Zacchaeus because of his faith. And Jesus continues his declaration. He says, the Son of Man, the one who has just restored you, has come to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus is a transformed sinner. His salvation involves massive financial generosity and restitution. And he is the picture of the mission of Jesus. Zacchaeus is a lost one who was sought and saved. Jesus goes on to the cross to prove the Son of Man is the Savior. He didn't just tithe His blood. He gave it all. He surrendered His life for you and for me. And we're to surrender our lives to Him. Not just part of it, not just a tenth of it, but exchange our life for His. Luke 9.23, at the beginning of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Has Jesus called your name? How are you responding to Him? What is it that you might be holding on to that you just won't let go? Is it keeping you from believing and enjoying in the fullness of the gospel and the good news? Is there anything that's keeping you from fully following Jesus 100%? and surrendering your life to Him. Don't let that be the thing that identifies you. The Pharisee, he was known for his self-righteousness. The rich ruler, he was known for trusting in his security and going away sad. Blind Bartimaeus was known for his faith. Zacchaeus became known as the son of Abraham. 
So the gospel comes in exchange for the life that you once lived. It is not in addition to your old life. It's my desire to better understand how to live a gospel-centered life. Will you allow the gospel to be the central thing in your life? Just like Rick said in communion, let it be the fixed point that references every aspect of your life. So that brings us to the big idea today. Embracing the gospel brings unexpected life changes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that touches our heart and opens our eyes and removes the scales from our eyes. Father, I thank you for the work you've done in my life over the last year, that you've shown me more and more of you, and as I learn more and more about you, I realize there are areas in my life I haven't surrendered. Father, help us to do that today. Father, we love you, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.